Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, if you would. It's been a couple weeks since we have been here in the Word and in our time here in 1 Samuel. And what we find here is that the Ark of the Covenant has been a proverbial hot potato. If you recall, there in chapter 4, when the children of Israel were encamped at a place called Ebenezer, that somebody had a bright idea. I know how we can defeat the Philistines, they said. Let's go get the ark. We'll get the ark and we'll bring it down here and it will save us. It will help us defeat our enemies. And that was the big mistake that they made. They were putting their faith in an it instead of in a him, in the Lord. They were putting their faith in this this box that represented the Lord's presence instead of the Lord himself. And the children of Israel on that day were soundly defeated. And the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive. And then we saw there in chapter 5 how the Philistines took the Ark and they put it in the temple of their god Dagon, the half-man, half-fish god And they come in one morning after they've placed the ark there in the temple of Dagon. And as they come in, they find Dagon is off of his little altar. And he's laying down on his face there before the ark. And so they think, oh, this is a bad scene. This isn't a good thing. And they take their God and they prop him back up again. And and the next day they come in and they find not only is Dagon on his face again before the ark, but this time his head and hands, you know, have fallen off. And so then the Philistines decide, you know what? These two gods can't coexist. They can't live together in the same house. So we'd better get rid of the ark. We'll take the broken God and, you know, we'll get rid of the ark. And so that's what they did. And they started to shift the ark to these various cities of the Philistines. But to each city that the ark would go to, that city would be hit by these plagues, these tumors. And so they came to the point where they were just like, you know, man, we've got to get rid of this thing. Because all it is, it's causing trouble upon our people. It's causing us to be devoured and destroyed by by these tumors. And so they call for the priests, the Philistine priests of their pagan gods, and they call for the diviners. And that's where we pick it up here in chapter 6. It says, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord, tell us how we should send it to its place. And so they said, If you send away the ark of, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, and then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And then they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to God. Of the God of Israel, and perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and from your hand. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? So their advice is when, it, when you send back the ark, it's good that you want to get rid of this thing. But, it, but their advice was don't send it back empty. You've trespassed against God, so you need to send a trespass offering accompanying the ark. Now, it's interesting to me that these pagan priests knew of the trespass offering, that they understood or had some understanding of this. And so they instruct them to send it back in that way. And so they send them back with this very interesting offering, five golden tumors. 
and five golden rats, one for each of the main cities of the lords of the Philistines. As you recall, the Philistine empire was divided into five regions, each having a a lord or a king over a certain city that was over a certain region. And so they were governing in that way. And they and each one of these cities had been plagued by these uh, plagues that had come upon them. And so they said, send it back with these golden tumors and these golden rats. Now, one commentator I read gave this idea as for the reason for this. And I don't know how accurate this is, but I thought it was interesting. He said the gold represented the value of their offering. And the tumors represented the plague. The plague that they had been inflicted with. And the rats, well, that represented their view of themselves before the God of Israel. That they were like mice, that they were like rats, that they were like these little creepy, crawly, you know, type of things in comparison to God. And, 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 you know, I don't think that's too far from an accurate picture here. The gold representing the value, the tumors representing the plague, the rats. Hey, that's what we're like before God. You know, we're a bunch of rats. Now, notice in verse six, their advice, he tells them to not harden their hearts towards God. And the the idea is don't harden your hearts before the Lord because when you do that, it only gets worse. And they cite the Egyptians. They cite Pharaoh. And you recall if you studied there in the book of Exodus how Pharaoh continued to harden his heart before God. And Moses would come and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh would say, no, I'm not going to let the people go. So a plague would come. And then Pharaoh would start to kind of get turned a little bit and he would get softened a little bit or, you know, he'd get stirred a little bit by the 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 calamity that was coming upon his people. And so, you know, after a couple of these plagues, finally, he says, "Okay, they can go. And then he would change his mind. And each time he was hardening his heart and each time the plague got more severe, it got worse, it got greater And the result, the ultimate plague, was the angel of death that swept over Egypt and took the firstborn of all the Egyptian families. And so these guys were saying, hey, don't harden your hearts. Remember what happened to Israel when they hardened their hearts. And it's wise for us. They're they're telling these lords of the Philistines how they need to learn from history. And you know what? We need to learn from history as well. This is a wise word for us as individuals. It's always good for us to look back as we study the Bible and to look at the the examples of those that we read about in the scriptures and we are to learn from their mistakes. Paul wrote in one of his epistles how these things were recorded for us so that we might examine them and that we might learn from them as to not follow in their footsteps, to not make the same mistakes that the children of Israel did as it related to their relationship with God. This is a great word for our our country at this present time because we are on the verge as a, a country of moving deeper and deeper into just completely abandoning God altogether, rebelling against the Lord. But yet when you see throughout the history of mankind that every single nation Every single community, every single empire that rebelled against God, short was their lifespan. Short was their existence. It wasn't long after that that their their downfall would take place. You see it in Rome. You see it in Babylon. You see it in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, this man that was raised up, this great man of power, but in his pride sought to exalt himself even above God. And what did God do? He humbled him. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, became like a wild beast living out in the wild, living like an animal for seven years. It's a heavy thing. And so these guys are encouraging these lords of the Philistines to learn from history. God said this very same thing to his own people. In the book of Psalms, the Lord tells them not to harden their hearts as they did in the day of the rebellion in the wilderness where the children of Israel, they hardened their hearts. And we read in Hebrews chapter four that the children of Israel did not enter into the the land of promise because of their unbelief, because they had hardened their hearts against God. And God constantly gives us that warning. 
Now, what does that look like for us as believers? Well, I'll tell you one way that it looks. For our nation, it's, it's really vivid. It's really clear. It's really direct. It's that, that, that voice out there that is saying, you know, that, that we need to ignore what the Bible says concerning marriage being between a man and a woman. It's that voice out there that, that is propagating all types of sexual immorality and homosexuality and all of that type of thing. That's what it looks like in our nation. It's that voice that says, you know, that we are God. But what about in the life of an individual Christian? Because we can be, be in danger as well of going into that realm and walking in that way where we start to harden our hearts against the Lord. And what does it look like in our life? It looks like this. It looks like in any given time in your life when all of a sudden the, the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit there in your heart starts to convict you about an action. He starts to convict you about something that you're doing. He starts to convict you about something that you're allowing into your life that he doesn't want to be a part of your life. It might even be a gray area, something that isn't black and white laid out in Scripture, sin. But it's something that in your life is going to be a bad thing. It's going to be a negative thing. And the Holy Spirit comes because God loves you so much. And he says, hey, you need to stay away from that. And you have that sense in your heart. You have that inclination there in your spirit that God is speaking to you. He's pressing upon you. He's making you feel uncomfortable even as you, you know, seek to partake in that particular activity. But then all of a sudden, as you ignore that voice of the Spirit, you know what happens? This is that hardening of the heart. The more that you ignore, because God is not going to force His way upon you, the more that you ignore, the deader your heart gets. The more faint your heart gets. And that conviction that was so strong the first time, that, that feeling of uneasiness that was so strong the first time, it becomes very, very faint after a few times of resisting that voice. And suddenly you become one who has hardened his heart against the Lord. And so they give this warning. And it's a good thing for us to pay attention to as well. We pick it up in, in verse 7. Now therefore make a new cart... And take two milk cows, which have never been yoked. Underline that phrase, new cart. We'll come back to that in a minute. And hitch the cows to the cart and take their, their calves home away from them. And then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. And then send it away and let it go. And watch if it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemeth. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. Here the Philistines are, are conducting an experiment. Now, they think all this calamity that has come upon them has come upon them from the hand of the Lord, but they're not entirely sure. They're not 100% sure. So they devised this test, and the test was very simple, and it was stacked against God. They got these two milk cows. Now, understand, these milk cows, by nature, these were two cows that had never been yoked. In other words, they weren't beasts who had previously been used to pull any type of plow or any type of wagon. They were just simply cows that were used for giving milk, for producing milk. And so they said to, to take these cows and they were going to put these yokes upon them. Now, these cows should have resisted those yokes. It should have been an uncomfortable thing that they kind of struggled against, never having had a yoke put upon them in that type of way. And then also they took their calves. They took them home. They took them away from them. Now, the maternal instinct should have kicked in at this point. And when they let these cows go, to go whichever way that they would you know, seek to go, that these cows, the maternal instinct would have drove them to go back to the land of the Philistines, to go back to, to the place where their calves were, to go back to, towards the Philistines. And so they devised this test. 
and forced the God of Israel to do something miraculous here to demonstrate that he had really been the cause of those plagues that had come upon them. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 10. It says, Then the men did so, and they took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And then they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold and the rats and the images of their tumors. And then the cows headed straight, note that, for the road to Beth Shemesh. Now that's in Israel. And went along the highway lowing. Now that word lowing, it means like they were crying, you know, like they were, they, they were moaning about it. They weren't happy as they went. And they did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Here's what happens. These cows that had never been yoked, that hadn't had that type of uh, you know, thing placed upon them, these cows who had been separated from their young, that were back in the city that they had been brought out of, these cows, instead of resisting the yoke, instead of turning around, they make a beeline. For Beth Shemesh. And they've never been there. They make a, a beeline for this city there in Israel. And notice they, they headed straight there. They didn't turn to the right. They didn't turn to the left. But they make a beeline to this place. They didn't meander around the way. But they went straight where they were supposed to go. This was a miracle. It was a miracle of God that these two cows who had never pulled a cart before. Either alone or together went straight to this place. They went straight to this city, leaving their calves behind, not turning one way or the other. And what we see in this is that God was able to overpower the instinctive nature of these cows. And you know what? God is also able to overpower our instinctive nature. Our instinctive nature is that nature of our flesh. It's our flesh that wants to rebel against God. And you see, listen, we who are, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Jesus said of us, now I'm not trying to compare us to, to two cows here, but, you know, if the application fits, then, you know, that's okay. But, uh, you know, that, my, my point is this. Jesus said that take my yoke upon you and learn of me yoke yourself to me connect yourself to me and when we connect ourselves to Jesus his influence on our life gives us power over the flesh and so the Philistines they devise this little plan and God shows them yeah this was me watch what I do now I told you to note these that they, they had the ark travel on a new cart. What's interesting about that is we'll see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6. That when David finally summons. He finally sends for the ark to come there to uh, Jerusalem. That he follows this example that we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. He calls for the ark to be brought to Jerusalem and they place it on a new cart. And what, what David's doing there is he's following the example of the world in a very spiritual thing. It was a good thing that he desired to bring the ark there to Jerusalem, but it was the wrong method. And you know what? We can fall into that trap. We can have the right desire in some spiritual thing, but we're not following the right method. And that was the mistake that David made. And as that cart, you see, God laid out in his word very clearly that the ark was to be transported only by the priest carrying the ark through these poles that would go through these slots that were on the side there of the ark. And it would take four priests one on each pole to carry that ark wherever the children of Israel went. And God laid out very clearly that this is how, in his word, the ark was to be transported. But David ignored that. David forgot that. David followed the example of the Philistines. And as they were going down the road, the ark started to falter. And this man reached out to, to, to keep it from falling over. And he was struck dead. And David got so upset by that. And he said, just leave the ark there. And some time went by until finally it was you know, revealed in the word that, hey, this is how we're supposed to do this, David. 
But we'll see that David follows this example here of the Philistines. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. And then the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and they stood there, and a large stone was there. And so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites, note that, took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. Now, the fact that they were in their fields harvesting means that it was probably May or June. Beth Shemesh was a city that was given to the Levites, and it was set on a knoll above a beautiful valley that stretched down into the coastal plains. And it was this area of Eshtal where Samson grew up, and it was a really glorious, beautiful place. It was a a beautiful valley, and it was this place that the ark was going to come down into. And as the, these two cows are bringing it down there into this field, the people are out there and they're harvesting the wheat. And no doubt they probably hear these cows kind of moaning a little bit as they're, you know, taking this cart down. And they see that what, what's hooked to this cart, what's on this cart, that it's the ark. It's the, the most prized possession in Israel. It's that piece of, of furniture there in the tabernacle itself that represented the presence of God amongst his people. And when they see it, they, they just begin to rejoice. Their emotions well up. They begin to celebrate. And notice that in verse 15, that it was the priests, the Levites, who took the ark off of the cart. And they broke up that cart. They made fire of the wood and they burned the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And they had this great celebration. The ark has come home. The ark has come back to the nation of Israel. Verse 16. And so when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And so here the lords of the Philistines see, okay, this was the Lord, this calamity that came upon us. Then it says, then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. And he struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God, and to whom shall it go up from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Now, it seems during this time of celebrating that some of the men of Israel got curious. Some commentators believe that they maybe, you know, had given themselves to some drink at this particular time. And, and, and so they make this horrible uh, mistake and they, they, they look inside of what was in the ark. Something which was forbidden by the Lord that they they were to to look into. And we read here that 50,070 men perished because of that sin. Now, in most of your Bibles, there's probably a little asterisk there by that number. And it's a number that has been speculated um, by the the, the commentators and the scholars um, for, for various reasons. Um, for one, they have a hard time believing that there was actually 50,000 people living or 50,000 men living in Beth Shemesh at this particular time because as the records show that there were only 70,000 living in Jerusalem at that time and it was a much bigger 
area. So some people believe that it was actually um, just the 70 men, but, but whether it was 50,000 or just 70, the point is very clear here that God takes very seriously his holiness. And the point is, is that these men were not showing respect for the Lord. These men had lost sight of their reverence for the Lord. There was a disregard by this action for God's holiness. And you know what? We see that same problem today. We see it in this type of way that people refer to God in this way. Hey, you know, I was talking to the big guy the other day. And they'll make statements like that. Or, hey, I was talking to the man upstairs. Or I was talking to my good buddy, you know. And people will make statements like that about the Lord. But listen, we must not forget that God is holy. In fact, one of the most descriptive uh, titles that we have for him that we see in the word of God over and over and over again is his holiness. That God is holy. That he is a holy God. That he is to be revered, that he is to be respected, that he is to be feared in that, in that respectful type of way, in that respectful type of sense that, hey, we are dealing with one who is incredible, who is radical, who is majestic, who is holy. God is holy. We read over and over again in the Bible that the, 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 the heavenly scene is filled with the, that description, those sayings, that the, the angels or the heavenly host singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And we need to remember that. We need to treat our God with a sense of reverence and respect. But here's the paradox. We also read, in the word that he's not just the holy God. He's not just the judge over all the earth. He's not just the majestic one, but he's also our father. And, and we are to come to him and cry Abba, which means daddy. And so there's this incredible paradox that we see there in the word of God. Holy God. Righteous God, a God to be feared, the judge over all the earth, but Abba at the same time. Where's the balance? Listen, the balance is found in this. The balance is only discovered when we remember what it took for him to become father. You see, prior to Christ dying on the cross, he wasn't father. He was the creator. He was the judge. He was the holy one. He was the one that we were to fear, the one that we were, were destined to stand before and to be judged and to be damned for our sins. But that holy, righteous God chose to do something on behalf of awful, sinful men. And he sent his son to come and pay the price. He sent his son to come and take the judgment. He sent his son to come and to bear the wrath that his holiness and his justice required. That he couldn't just wink at sin, but it, it, his, that sin could not go unpunished. And so he, in his love, chose to send his son to bear the punishment so that then we who were to stand before him as a, a just judge would now be able to come before him as a loving father. The men of Bethshemesh asked a good question. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? They had offended his holiness. And they know now, man, the Lord is holy. But notice, it, it, it doesn't make them want to be closer to God. It makes them want to distance themselves from God. They call for the guys down in Kirjath-Jerim and say, hey, man, come get the ark. And this has been a bummer for us. This holy God. You know, that's the sad reaction of a lot of people today. People look at God and they think, what's the use? I can never get close to him. What's the use? My life is doomed. The psalmist, he asked a similar question in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what he said. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? 
then he answered it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, hey, let's go home. It's no use, man. There's none of us here could say, I've got clean hands and a pure heart in and of ourselves. We're doomed. Who can stand? Only those who have clean hands and a pure heart. But listen, how have we been made clean? By the blood of Jesus Christ. By the blood of Jesus. And now through the blood of Jesus, we're invited to come boldly before the Lord. We have access there into his presence. And so we see here this incredible Picture an example of the holiness of God. We pick it up in chapter 7. Then the men of Kirjath Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. For 20 years Israel was snared by sin. And after 20 years, they finally lamented. And what happens here is God responds. That's what happens, though. That's what happens. Sin has a way of wearing you out. After 20 years, these guys, they cry out. And God comes to the rescue. And so it was that the ark remained in kirjath Jerem a long time. And it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all of your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asteros from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And so the children of Israel put away the bells and the asteros, and they serve the Lord only. True lamentation will always bring about reformation. True lamentation will always bring about reformation. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where he declared that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but worldly sorrow produces death. True godly sorrow, true godly lamentation. When we come to a place where we recognize, man, that was sin and it was wrong. And God, I've blown it. And there's that sense of, you know, I'm not grieving over the consequences necessarily. I'm not grieving over over the fact that I got caught. I'm not grieving about, you know, what what this means and the effect that it's going to have. But I'm grieving over the fact that I know I have sinned against God. Remember David? When Nathan came to David after he had hid his sin for nine months. And he confronted him about it with the little story about the guy who had the one lamb and the, the, the rich guy who had many and he took of the one. And you know the story. It's an illustration of how David took Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And David gets all upset and, and then Nathan says those fatal words, David, you're the man. That story's about you. And what does David say? I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you, Lord. I think too often our problem is we, we, we think of our sins too much in terms, only in terms of, of the people that we've hurt or the effect that it's had. And we fail to understand that it was sin against God. Is that which broke his heart. But true godly sorrow produces repentance. Repentance means a change that leads to salvation, not to be regretted, not to be looked back and go, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. But no, you come to that place and you see the salvation of God. You see the the reformation and restoration that takes place. And it's like, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And so we see this very thing happening here in 1 Samuel chapter 7. There's a turning away from their foreign gods. They're crying out to the Lord. Now, Baal was the major male deity of the Canaanites. He was the most prominent of their deities. He was the son of Dagon. And he was the god of intellect and prosperity. He was the god who would bring them success. Now, Ashtaroth was the oldest and the most prominent of the female 
Canaanite deities. She was worshipped throughout every other culture in the ancient world. She was referred to in the Greek culture as Astarte, in the Babylonian culture as Ishtar, in the Roman culture as Venus. And she was the goddess of sexuality, and she was worshipped by means of all sorts of perverted sexual practices. And these two gods would be the ones that throughout Israel's history that would constantly seduce the Israelites. But you know what? These are two gods that are prominent in our world today. There are two gods that we need to be aware of today. You see, in, in the church, we can suffer today from the, that God Baal. Intellect and prosperity. That intellectual pride that in many ways, today, we sit as the most learned generation in, in probably all of church history. As far as that what we have available, what we have at our fingertips, what we have on the television airways, what we have on the radio airways, we have this plethora of information given out to us just where we can get so much. The books, the commentaries, the, the teachings. We're probably one of the most learned generations in all of church history. But you know what? Sometimes that knowledge, what did Paul say? In his letter there in Corinthians, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And sometimes in our, in our knowledge, there can be a pride in thinking that, you know, we know it all, that we've got it all together. There can be a pride as it relates to our intellect and our own ingenuity and in thinking that, that as it relates to the things of the Lord, that, you know, we don't need to seek Him. We don't need to pray. We don't need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. You know, we'll just direct this program or that program, and we'll just do this thing. And also in the sense of prosperity here in the United States, I think in many ways it's brought a laziness and a powerlessness to the church. That there isn't an urgency amongst us today. That you see in, in, in foreign countries, in places where, where they know that their, their very lives are at stake. As they name the name of Christ. There's an urgency. And one of the biggest problems in the church today is that of sexual immorality. And through vehicles like pornography and that type of thing it's a major problem across the board in the church throughout the united states it's one of the the biggest things that as as you know pastors speak in in forms of of problems in the church today it's the goddess astaroth and we could add to that moloch moloch was that pagan deity where they would come and they would take their children and they would place them on the burning arms of the, the god Moloch and they, in, in hopes that as their, their newborn babies, their newborn children would be incinerated there on the arms of Moloch, that Moloch would then bless their crops and bless their agriculture. And we see that today in our culture, don't we, through the sin of abortion. Millions of babies every year. Their lives being taken. Paul gave great insight into these pagan deities in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, where he said there that when people sacrifice to idols, that they're sacrificing to demons. And the idea is this, that behind that idol is a demonic force. And listen, the idols might be gone. We don't have idols of Baal and Astroth and Moloch, you know, in our backyards and, you know, up in the hills and, you know, in, in front of City Hall and that type of thing anymore, but... The idols might be gone, but the spiritual entities aren't. It's just a new day with a new tactic and a new sales pitch. But it's the same old stuff. And so Samuel calls the nation here back to purity, back to the Lord. Verse 5. And Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mishpah. And I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered together at Mishpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mishpah. Now, here we see that this was a time of spiritual renewal. 
And I want you to note that the time of spiritual renewal resulted in a confession of sins. And that is something that always accompanies a true spiritual renewal and revival. You study through the history of the Bible, the history of the church, the history of various nations where mass revival has come. It has always followed or it's always started with a confession of sin where people come to that place of realizing that they have sinned against God. And as an outward sign of this inward reality, there's this, the washing of the hands that takes place here. The washing of the hands of idolatry as they pour out this water before the Lord. And we see as well, we have these outward signs of that inward reality. We saw it tonight as we were in worship. The lifting of the hands, simply declaring, Lord, I surrender. Or, Lord, I need to receive from you. We saw it on Sunday down at the beach as brothers and sisters were being baptized. An outward expression of an inward reality. We see it on the first Wednesday night of the month as we gather like we did um, I think a couple of weeks ago for communion. And it's the outward expression of that, that inward reality that as we take of the bread and the cup that we are saying, Lord, I, I desire to die. And I desire, Lord, your life to be living through me. All of those are expressions of an inward attitude and an outward display of where we are at in our relationship with the Lord. And so they're they're getting right here with the Lord. But I want you to know, whenever you're getting right with the Lord, you can expect a fight from the devil. Notice verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mishpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now note this. Right after restoration, you will face confrontation. Right after blessing, they face battle. We see the same thing in the life of Jesus. Jesus goes down into the Jordan River. John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptizes Jesus. The dove, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, descends upon God the Son there in the form of a dove. And then God the Father, the Trinity being seen there in in all of its glory. God the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was a big moment in the life of Jesus. And immediately after that, we read that he was driven by the spirit into the wilderness and there tempted by the devil. After the transfiguration, when Jesus is seen there on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and he's seen glowing there in an aspect of his glory, he comes down off of that mountain and he's faced with a demon-possessed boy and a desperate father. Whenever you have a great day in the Lord, note Satan will be there to fight you. Satan never has a good day. It's never a good day for him. He never takes a break. He never says, you know, I think that I'll just kind of back off on Calvary Chapel Vista today. I'm just going to kind of give him a break. He doesn't do that. And that's why we need to pray continually. That's why when we are talking about, you know, the building project and what we're going through with the city and we say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, we had a victory with the, the, the city council or we had a victory with the planning commission or, you know, we, we, we had, a, you know, some great signs. It's, it's not a, an opportunity. It's not a time to all of a sudden sit back and go, OK, great, man, everything's cool. No, we need to pray even harder because the enemy will come against us and not, you know, not just us as a church. That's true in your individual life. Satan never says, you know, I think I'm going to go on vacation. I think I'll give him a break this week. No, every day, every minute, and every hour, he seeks to tear us down. And so after a blessing, we need to brace for the blasting. After the blessing, we need to get ready and be ready for the battle. Verse 8, so the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so here we see, I love this, they turned their fears into prayer. We, we, we read in verse 7, they were afraid. 
But then we read in verse 8, they turn that fear into prayer. They're crying out to the Lord. What does the Bible tell us? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Cast all your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Don't get fearful. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Don't get fearful. Don't get worried. But turn those fears and those worries into prayer. Cry out to the Lord. We need to learn to take our fears, our cares, our misgivings and cast them on the Lord saying, help us. And that's what these guys are doing here. They cry out to Samuel, pray. Verse 9. And Samuel took a suckling lamb. Note that, underline that. As a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day. And so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Bethkar. Now, next to Bethkar, right there in your Bible, the house of the Lamb. That's what that, that name means. So Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So here we see God joins in in the battle. There's this thundering that happens. It freaks the Philistines out. It confuses them. And they turn on each other. And the children of Israel are just, you know, filled with courage and they chase after them and they have this great victory that day. Now, there's two things that I want us to note here. As I said there in Bethkar, in verse 11, the name means house of the lamb. And I had you underline there in verse 9 how Samuel began this whole process by sacrificing a lamb. I think these two things present to us a very interesting picture. The day of victory began with the sacrifice of a lamb, and it ended at the house of the lamb. Now, this is a great picture, because you see, victory always starts with the lamb, with Jesus Christ. It always starts with the lamb, and it comes to completion in the lamb. It comes to completion in Christ. Our victory started on Calvary with the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for our sins. And it will end in our home in the heavenlies when all of heaven, as we read in Revelation chapter 4, is proclaiming worthy is the Lamb. It starts with the death of the Lamb. And it culminates in the house of the Lamb, dwelling in the house of the Lord. Now, the second thing I want you to notice is that after the victory, Samuel erected a stone, a monument in Ebenezer. And the word Ebenezer means the stone of help. Now, as we noted in the very beginning of our study, The children of Israel, they were defeated at Ebenezer in the whole Ark of the Covenant debacle. They were defeated when somebody said, hey, let's take it down into the battle and it will set us free. It will give us victory. And the Ark was captured. The children of Israel were defeated. But now, 20 years later, we see them coming to this very same place, and they're victorious. Why? Because instead of trusting in an ark, they trusted in God. Instead of trusting in an it, they trusted in a him. And here they set up this stone for remembrance. It's remembering what the Lord did in response to their prayer. They erect this Ebenezer stone. You know, I think that this is a good thing for us to do. We see it over and over again. Joshua crossing the Jordan River and he sets up some stones as a memorial. That's what this is. It's a memorial of remembrance. 
Abraham plants a tree as a memorial. It's good for us to have these things in our lives, in our church, that, that are laid out as memorials, reminders of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to meet us in our time of need. The faithfulness of God to come through for us when we were in that desperate situation. The faithfulness of God to to meet us in that time when we were in financial distress, when we were in that place of of needing physical healing. And and it's so good because it's so easy, isn't it, for us to forget. We forget. You know, I'm presently going through a time in my own life right now where just some things happening, some things going on that if the Lord hadn't brought me through this kind of thing before, I'd be kind of freaking out. But because I've been through this same type of situation a time or two now, same type of trial, same type of just transition and change, It's like I can look at it now and I go, okay, you know what? I know that God is going to be faithful. I know that God's going to bring me through because he did it this time and he did it the time before. He's faithful. Now, for me, I like to write down these type of things in my journal. That, in essence, is my Ebenezer stone, if you would. I'm thinking about, in our new facility, having some type of... uh, Ebenezer stone with maybe a a description of this particular text to explain it as just a example. Hey, this is this is what God did. This is his faithfulness in our fellowship. The Ebenezer stone stands as a great encouragement to me because I know that the Lord hasn't brought me this far as a Christian to just dump me. The Lord hasn't brought you this far to just let you go. The Lord has, has brought us this far because he's going to take us all the way. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 138, verse 8, The Lord will work out his plans for my life. For your faithful love, O Lord, endures forever. Or as Paul declared in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or as he said in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. That's the value of raising an Ebenezer stone. It's a reminder. God is faithful. And it also reminds us that the work was done by God. That it wasn't done by us. That, that, that it should never be said of us, of what Paul wrote to the Galatians when he said, Oh, you foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Because they were falling into this trap. And we can fall into it as individuals. And we can fall into it as a, as a ministry. You can fall into it in your business where all of a sudden God blesses and he does this thing. And suddenly you know it's a work of God. But years go by and you start thinking, you know what? I just need to do this and then you know this is going to happen and we start to to take that arm of the flesh to perfect improve upon what God has done and so it reminds us of our reliance upon the Lord and so we read here in verse 13 the Philistines were subdued And they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. And also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on the circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord.